song. And if you'll notice, he also tells us in this verse the origin of our song. It says, it's with my heart. This song doesn't just come from the lungs. This song comes from the heart. And so it's from the heart, among ourselves, to the Lord. And then if you notice that little word in there, two words, it says we're also making melody. That's the Greek word that literally means twang. Uh, tells me that Paul was country. Uh, the word literally means to pluck a string. And so the idea here is not only that we are singing praises to the Lord, but the idea that we can actually play musical instruments in praise to God. And throughout Scripture you find a number of instruments, stringed instruments like the azor, delsima, harp, sackvit, lyre, Wind instruments like the trumpet, coronet, flute, pipe organ, ram's horn, drums, timbrels, bells, tambourines, cymbals. Music without words is praise to God. I think that explains why in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 23, it says that when David played his harp for King Saul, the evil spirit left him. I don't think that was just because he liked the music. I think that David's music was worship to God. And in that atmosphere, that evil spirit was not comfortable and he left. And so, not only can we praise God with our hearts and our lips, but we can also praise Him on instruments. If you've never noticed in Scripture, it seems that God loves music. He loves music singing. In Job 38, 7, it tells us that the angels sang while God was creating the earth. So God created to musical accompaniment. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the angels singing again in the book of Revelation. What's interesting is, between the time when he created the earth and the time in the future in Revelation 5, we don't find the angels singing. And the reason the angels are not singing is because the song is a song of redemption and the angels don't know that song. That's our song to sing. And so it's our opportunity to sing at this point in time. The first song recorded in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 15. It's the song of Moses. Children of Israel came through the Red Sea and they sang, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. And that whole chapter is a song that they sang to the Lord. First women's choir is in Exodus 15, 20 and 21. It says that Miriam led the women's choir with timbrels and dancing. The first men's choir is in 1 Samuel 10. Samuel and a group of prophets prophesied with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre. Now that had to be a doctrinally sound group. They were all prophets singing to the Lord. 1 Chronicles 23.5 says Solomon had a 4,000-member choir with instruments. I could sing in a 4,000-member choir. You wouldn't hear me. 1 Chronicles 13.8 says this same choir gathered together and they had a congregational sing. They had lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. And it says this phrase, they sang with all their might to the Lord. Which tells me that God likes it loud. David said in Psalm 47.1, Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. 
And if you read through the book of Revelation, it says in Revelation 5.12 that the host of heaven will sing with a loud voice. Revelation 7.10 says they'll cry out with a loud voice. And Revelation 19.6 says a voice comes from the throne and says, Give praise to our God. And John says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's going to be loud in heaven. And God likes it loud. Next time you're singing loud and somebody leans over to you, in my case, it's usually my wife, and says, could you keep it down? You can just say, don't be unscriptural. God likes it loud. Judges chapter 5 tells us that after Barak and Deborah had defeated the armies of Canaan, they sang to the Lord. Nehemiah 12, Nehemiah dedicated the walls of Jerusalem with two great choirs that went around the walls accompanied by cymbals and harps and lyres. When Jesus had finished his time in the upper room with the disciples and before he got to the Mount of Olives, it tells us in Mark 14, 26 that they went out and sang a hymn. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in prison and what were they doing? They were singing. God loves singing. Now, I emphasize that because sometimes as Christians, we view singing as something we simply do while we're waiting for everybody to get their seat. Now, I'll sing one more verse until everybody's in here. Well, that's not the point of singing. God loves singing. You say, well, I'm a monotone. Doesn't say anything here about quality. Doesn't say anything here about being on key. Uh, my son came to me recently and he said he was in somebody's car and they had a tape of my message on. And the message ended, and I gave an invitation, and he said, all I could hear was your voice. And he said, please, Dad, tell him to take that off the tape. <laughs> See, I take great comfort in Psalm 100 that says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. That God's not as concerned about the quality of your voice as He is about the quality of your heart. He wants a spirit-filled heart. And he's far more concerned about that than he is whether you hit the notes right or not. Psalm 40 says, He brought me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. God gives us a new song. You know, some Christians think old songs are better. God gives us a new song. You say, well, it's not in the hymn book. Well, God gives us new songs. And that's why in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, it says in the future we will sing a new song. It's on an old theme, what Jesus has done, but it's a new song. And so God has given us a new song, and He wants to hear us sing when it comes from a Spirit-filled heart. See, if you're singing out of hypocrisy, God doesn't want to hear it. If you're singing just to impress others, God doesn't want to hear it. God wants it to come out of a heart and life of reality. In fact, let me show you a verse. Look at Amos chapter 5. Great passage where God addresses this issue. Amos chapter 5. Amos is right after Joel. If you're having trouble. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 
God is speaking and he says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them and I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sicketh your king and Kiyun your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. What's God saying? He says, I don't want to hear your songs. Why not? Because you're coming to me and you're singing songs of praise to me while you're holding idols in your hands. And what God is saying is, I don't want half-hearted worship. You either come to me with a full heart or don't come to me at all. And that's what he's saying in Ephesians chapter 5. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will be singing praises to God and they will be full because we will be full of the Spirit of God. There's an interesting statement in Revelation chapter 14. There it describes the 144,000 Jewish witnesses in the tribulation and it says they're going to be standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And in verse 3 it says they're going to sing a new song to Him and it adds this phrase, it says, nobody else could learn the song. That's an interesting phrase. The 144,000 are going to sing this song and nobody else can learn it. You won't learn it, I won't learn it because it's their song. Which tells me that in heaven, singing is going to be what God intended it to be. Because you're going to only be able to say in song what you have experienced and what has come through your heart to the Lord. And that's true today as well. We should only be singing those things that we have experienced and that we can say with a full heart to God because God doesn't want to hear our half-hearted worship. He doesn't want us to hear, to hear us saying things that we don't mean. And so the evidence of being filled with His Spirit in my life is that I am able then to sing to God with a heart that is full of love and adoration for Him. That's why when I see on the television advertised something like, you know, hear Elvis sing your favorite gospel hymns, I always think, well, you know, you can have that. Because I really don't care. I know God doesn't care to hear somebody sing the words that doesn't mean it. And I really don't care to hear that either. I would rather hear somebody sing who means it than somebody who sings well. When I was in Bible college, I used to go down to Cook County Jail and hold Bible studies with the inmates. And before we would start, we would all gather in a big room and we would sing together. It was probably the worst singing I've ever heard. Because it was in this concrete room down in the basement of Cook County Jail and there was no acoustics to it. And, and yet, it was beautiful music, I'm certain, to the ears of God. Because it was men whose lives had been changed singing praise to God. That's what God desires to hear. And I would suggest out of Ephesians chapter 5 that you be careful if you're a Christian that you don't fill your mind with the world's music. We live in a society where music is everywhere. When you get in your car, you turn on your radio, you go to your house, you turn on your stereo, you get in an elevator, there's music there. There's music everywhere pumped into our head. The problem is, 
If my head is full of music that is the world's music, then it's hard for me to be filled with the Spirit because the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that I am singing a new song to the Lord. And I think some of us don't experience that new song to the Lord because we never get quiet enough to really allow the Spirit of God to produce that in our lives. You know, a lot of Christians talk about having a quiet time. You know, that phrase is never used in Scripture. It says Jesus went to a quiet place, but it doesn't say he was quiet. And in my quiet time, sometimes I get pretty loud because I find myself singing when I'm in right relationship with the Lord. You wouldn't want to record it, but it's an expression of my praise to him. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Describes the, the occasion when Solomon dedicated the temple. And he had his 4,000 member choir and his 120 trumpeters. And it says in verse 13 In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, he indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What a place to be. When we gather together, if we each one are filled with the Spirit, then we create an atmosphere where God, by His Spirit, can fill this place. God inhabits the praises of His people. And when we come with a Spirit-filled heart to praise Him, what an occasion. The glory of the Lord came down to such an extent that the priest couldn't even minister in the temple. Wow. Look at one other verse in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. You can overlook this verse when you're studying through Hebrews if you're not careful. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. To get the context, the end of verse 11 says, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So it's speaking about Jesus. And verse 12 says, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Jesus Christ is saying that he will sing the praise of the Father in the midst of the congregation, which is the church. So who is the greatest soloist in the, universe, in the universe? It's Jesus Christ. And how does he sing praises today to the Father? He sings through us. We are the body of Christ. So you see, when you and I quench the Spirit, we are quenching the voice of Jesus Christ giving praise to the Father. That's a serious thing. So when you say, well, I don't like to sing, that's boring you are quenching the Spirit of God because the first thing He produces in your life when He fills you is singing, praising Him. Second evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit is giving thanks in verse 20. It says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Your thankfulness is a pretty good spiritual thermometer. 
Because when you're thankful, you can be certain that you're walking with the Lord. When you are unthankful, you can be certain that you are not. Because the opposite of thankfulness is complaining. And complaining is rooted in pride. Because when I complain, what I'm saying is, I deserve better than this. Which is saying what? I'm special. I'm better than other people. I deserve better than this. Unthankfulness is a dangerous thing. In fact, it's really the first step away from God. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. First step away from God was what? Being unthankful. It's a dangerous thing to be unthankful. And the one thing that the Spirit of God produces in us after praise is thankfulness. Now, you've got to be careful with thankfulness because it's more than words. You remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, he came to God and said, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's being thankful with the wrong attitude. See, the attitude of thankfulness is that I'm totally dependent upon God. I'm not self-sufficient, and I don't deserve what I get, and so I'm thankful to Him. When should we be thankful? Paul says we're to be thankful always. Hebrews 13, 15 says continually we're to be thankful. What should I give thanks for? Paul says in this verse we're to give thanks for all things. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, he says, in everything give thanks. You say, but you don't know my job. You don't know my teenager. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. It doesn't matter. Paul says you're to be thankful always for all things. You know where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison where he was most of the time. And he was saying to them, be thankful always for all things. You say, well, how can I be thankful for all things? Well, I think there's a couple primary reasons. Number one, because what I know The Bible says all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. And the Bible also says in James chapter 1, verse 2, that we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. So even the negative things in my life have a purpose because God is working them out for good, and those negative things are actually producing endurance in me. They're refining my faith so I can give thanks for them. But I can also give thanks because of what I have that circumstances can't touch. And that's the things that, are, that Paul listed in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Our salvation, our forgiveness, our redemption, the inheritance that we have, that we are the children of God. Those are all things that circumstances cannot change and cannot touch. And so I can always be thankful in a situation, no matter how bad it is, because it doesn't affect those things. And I know that no matter how bad it is, God is working it all out for good. Now... There are certain times when we find it easier to give thanks than other times. And I think sometimes you can evaluate your timing in thanksgiving to kind of see where you're at in your maturity level as a Christian. Because the easiest time to give thanks is obviously after God has delivered you. In Exodus chapter 15, the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry land. The water closed up and killed the enemy, and they said, Thank you, God. I mean, that was a pretty easy time to say, Thanks. But there's a more difficult time to give thanks, and that is before God delivers you. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 20 and verse 21, Jehoshaphat was the leader of Israel and the Moabites and the Ammonites were coming down on them to conquer them. And Jehoshaphat prayed and said, Lord, we're powerless between, before these people and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't have a clue how to get out of this, but our eyes are on you. And then he created a strategy that was very interesting. He decided to go out to battle against the enemy and put the choir out front. Now, that would have been one time when I would be glad I don't sing well. He put the choir out in front of the Marines, and the choir led them out to battle, and it says that the choir went out singing, Give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is everlasting. Looked like they were going to be defeated. They went out thanking God ahead of time. And it says this in verse 22 of that chapter. It says, And when they began singing and praising the Lord routed the enemy. When they began to say thank you, God stepped in and delivered them. So you can say thank you afterwards. That's pretty easy. But it's more difficult to say thank you ahead of time. Have you ever gotten there in your spiritual life? Thank you, Lord, for this difficulty that's on the horizon. I know you're going to work it out, and I'm going to thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do. That's tougher. But you know, the toughest time to give thanks, I think, is right in the middle of of a situation. Right in the middle of a trial, right when everything seems to be crumbling and falling apart, when you can say in the midst of that situation, thank you, God, because I still know you're in control and I still know you're going to work this out. Reminds me of Jonah. Remember Jonah did a lot of things wrong, but he ended up in the belly of the great fish. And in the belly of the great fish in Jonah chapter 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Now, his situation looked pretty bleak. He was in the acid stomach of a fish down in the midst of the ocean. And he's saying, thank you, Lord. Next words we read, he's on the shore amidst fish vomit. And the Lord has delivered him. But he didn't know that. He's saying, thank you, from the belly of the fish. The classic example would be Job. Tells us Job was doing whatever he did on a certain day. And a servant came up to him and said, The Sabians attacked, took the oxen, took the donkeys, killed all the servants. I'm the only one who escaped, and I came here to tell you. And the Bible says, while he was still speaking, another servant came running up and said, Fire came out of heaven, burned up the sheep, burned up all the servants. I'm the only one who escaped, and I came here to tell you. And the Bible says, while he was still speaking, another servant came running up and said, The Chaldeans attacked, stole the camels, killed all the servants. I'm the only one who escaped, and I ran right here to tell you. And then it says, while he was still speaking, a fourth servant came up and said, your sons and daughters were eating in your oldest son's house. A wind came, knocked the house down, killed everybody. I'm the only one who escaped, and I came here to tell you. Now, that's bad news. You know what the Bible says? It says, Job tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on his face, worshipped and said naked I came from my mother's womb naked I shall return the Lord has given the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord right in the middle of the most difficult trial you could ever imagine he was praising God and giving thanks you see that's maturity and when I allow the spirit of God to fill me I'm able to say thank you not only after God gives me the victory, but before, but not only that, I'm able to give thanks in the midst of the trial. What a refreshing thing it is is to run into a Christian 
I've gone to visit Christians in the hospital when I went up, I went up there dreading it, thinking, boy, things are so bad in their life, I don't even want to go see them, I don't know what to say, and I get up there and guess what happens? They encourage me in the midst of that trial because they're, they're filled with the Spirit of God, they've got their eyes on the Lord, and they know that He's in control. And they're able to thank Him in the midst of that. I come out of some hospital rooms feeling like I just went to a service and got edified because of the attitude of people in the midst of trials. That's the Spirit of God. And then the third thing he says is submitting. And that's in verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. When I'm filled with the Spirit, I will have a desire to put the welfare of others ahead of my own welfare. And we're going to see how that is worked out in the relationships of life. He's going to talk about how it works out in the husband-wife relationship, how it works out with parents and children, how it works out with masters and slaves. And that will be things that we'll look at in the coming weeks. And so we'll really save this verse because it's really the, the heading of the verses that will follow.